Hello, friends. This is Jim Cross, Chief Financial Officer of Village Missions, back with our third episode of Small Church and Ministry Finance Guide. We're discussing the fiduciary responsibility of the board and the elements of it. Fiduciary responsibility is a big phrase that simply describes the trust that board members are called to keep. As a board member, you can be exposed to personal liability, so it is important to be aware of the legal risks and responsibilities that your service entails, as well as the ways to minimize these risks. The main source of personal liability stems from a failure to exercise this trust that you are called to keep. There are three main duties that are most commonly mentioned under a state's nonprofit corporation law. In our last episode, we covered duty of care. In this episode, we're going to talk about the duty of loyalty. And in the next episode, we'll talk about duty of obedience. Before we dive into duty of loyalty, I want to mention a special offer. In the last episode, we encouraged you to take a look at a fraud course offered by CPA and certified fraud examiner Tiffany Couch. In a series of concise training videos, Tiffany takes you through some of the hard lessons learned by her clients. She teaches you how to read financial statements, how to read bank statements, and much more. The link is stopnonprofitfraud.com. Use the code CROSS20 to save $20 on your course. StopNonprofitFraud.com is an excellent resource and totally worth it. Use the code CROSS20 to save $20 on your course or follow the link in the show notes below. Now, on to duty of loyalty. The duty of loyalty requires directors to act in the interest of the ministry or church rather than in their personal interest. And when duty of loyalty is present and operating, the board will have an effective conflict of interest policy in place. The board will discuss apparent conflicts of interest as they arise and decide how to handle them. So what does a conflict of interest look like? How does a board member disclose a conflict of interest? And how does a board respond to apparent conflicts? A conflict of interest occurs when a disqualified person benefits financially, directly or indirectly, through approval of a transaction in which there is a direct or indirect interest in the entity or the individual providing the goods or services for which they are being paid. Now, who is a disqualified person? That is a legal term found in the tax code that is used to describe directors, officers, key employees, and other insiders of the organization. That's the executive director, the CFO, board members, their spouses, their children, anyone related by blood or marriage. Let's take an example The church needs a contractor to do a repair. The board decides to give the job to Buddy, 
because he's the son-in-law of a board member, and we know he'll do a good job for the church. Do we have a conflict of interest? Apparently, yes. Is it a permissible conflict? A permissible conflict? Possibly, yes. It depends on how the church handles it. Let's say Buddy's name is brought up in a board meeting. If the need is not urgent, perhaps it's decided to put the job out for bid. We want to get three quotes from local contractors and we'll come back next month and choose one because you know it it takes a couple months to make a decision, right? So three contractors are invited to bid on the job and all three show up and submit bids. Miracle, right? If your economy is anything like it is where I live, just getting a contractor to show up practically assures them the job. Contractors are busy. So we have three bids. We take them to our next meeting. The first thing we want to do is decide what role Buddy's father-in-law is going to have in the meeting. Now, he's definitely not going to vote on the decision because he has a conflict. The board chair should consider in advance whether he's going to let him participate in the discussion. If you're dealing with something that is high stakes or sensitive, you may want to excuse the person with the conflict from that portion of the meeting and make sure that you note the recusal in your minutes. So Buddy's father-in-law is not participating. You look at the bids, and of the three contractors, Buddy's bid falls in the middle. Do you dismiss Buddy's bid out of hand and go with the lowest? Not necessarily. Perhaps the low bid comes from a guy whose bid is light on details. Maybe he's asking for an advance to purchase materials, and you have your doubts about whether he's going to be able to follow through to completion. You see the missing detail in his bid, and you know you're going to end up with change orders. So the low bid isn't necessarily the best bid. Did Buddy give you a complete bid? Did he capture all the detail? Does his price seem reasonable? You compare it to the highest bid, and you see that while the highest bid is similar to Buddy's in the level of detail, the material, and the labor required, the highest bid comes from a company with a brand new fleet of trucks and a marketing budget. So considering that Buddy is a small sole proprietor that runs a tight ship, you see his bid as reasonable and it's easy to accept. A disqualified person does not have to offer the church the lowest price for a product or service. All that is required is that the price be fair and reasonable. So in Buddy's case, even though an apparent conflict of interest exists, you can say with integrity that Buddy was the best choice because you worked the process and you also documented the process in your minutes in case the question ever arises. You have satisfied the duty of loyalty because the transaction was fully disclosed, it was approved by the board, without the vote of the interested father-in-law, and the transaction was fair and reasonable to the church. Our example of Buddy the Contractor is a great illustration of what a typical conflict of interest looks like and how a board should respond. There are other non-financial benefits that represent a conflict of interest, and you need to be familiar with these as well. The most common 
non-financial benefit is the use of church resources. That is facilities or vehicles, etc., for personal gain or securing preferential treatment for board members or their family or friends. For example, your church may have a facility use policy that requires that a fee be paid for the use of the facility. The board chair's family has a big anniversary party and they use the church facility without paying the fee. That is an excess benefit. Stated simply, an excess benefit transaction is one in which the value of the benefit provided to an insider exceeds the value of the insider's services. The excess benefit can be an inflated salary, but it can also be other kinds of transactions. It can be the sale of an organization's assets to an insider for less than fair market value. It can be the use of an organization's property for personal purposes, or it can be the payment of an insider's personal expenses. Churches and ministries that fail to properly manage conflicts of interest may be subject to significant penalties against directors, against the ministry, or both. Penalties for directors are called intermediate sanctions. Intermediate sanctions is another legal term that comes out of the tax law. I don't want to dive into that too deeply on this podcast because we're operating under the assumption that we all want to live within the spirit and the letter of the law and put God's kingdom first. They're called intermediate sanctions because the IRS needed a tool in their box to punish the bad actors in the nonprofit organizations. It used to be the only recourse the IRS had to punish the bad actors was to revoke their organization's nonprofit status. Some reasonable people thought, well, that's severe, and that's punishing the organization for the actions of the leadership, which can change and probably should change. So they came up with intermediate sanctions. If the IRS determined that you received an excess benefit, they can assess a 25% excise tax on the value of the transaction. If the tax isn't paid within the same year, and you know it'll take a few years for them to catch up with you, they will assess 200% on top of the 25%. And if you're an organization manager who looks the other way, you could be personally liable for a 10% penalty. And that's not something the organization can pay for you. And so executive pastors, finance directors, bookkeepers, I'm talking to you. Even if you're the part-time bookkeeper, you are responsible for discharging the duty of loyalty. And sometimes that means saying no to the boss. So go ahead, do it. I've got your back. One final way that the duty of loyalty could be violated is when a disqualified person capitalizes on an opportunity to the detriment of the ministry. For example, let's say some property adjacent to the church goes up for sale. 
It's a great opportunity for the church, but being a church, it's hard to get a deal done. So let's assume that a board member with the means steps in and makes a cash offer and purchases the property for himself at a cost of $100,000. He later offers to sell the property to the church for $200,000. Under these circumstances, the director likely has violated the fiduciary duty of loyalty by usurping a corporate opportunity. The takeaway here is keep duty of loyalty as a guiding value. Put the ministry first. Be alert to apparent conflicts of interest. Pay your own way as a director and make sure you're giving back to the ministry you love. Go the extra mile so that no one can say that you had an advantage. In addition, you should adopt a conflict of interest policy. There are excellent resources on the web, which I will link to in the show notes. If you're a church, it's recommended. If you are a ministry that files a Form 990, it is required. You should discuss duty of loyalty at least once a year and have your directors disclose potential conflicts at that time and keep these disclosures on file with the board minutes. So that's duty of loyalty. I look forward to meeting again soon to discuss duty of obedience. Before you go, be sure to take a look at the fraud course offered by CPA and Certified Fraud Examiner Tiffany Couch. In a series of concise training videos, Tiffany takes you through some of the hard lessons learned by her clients. She teaches you how to read financial statements, how to read bank statements, and much more. The link is stopnonprofitfraud.com, and the discount code is CROSS20 to save $20 off of your course. Stopnonprofitfraud.com is an an excellent resource and totally worth it, and you can follow the link in the show notes. Also, our podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts. You can just say, hey, Siri, play the podcast, Small Church and Ministry Finance Guide. So I will look forward to meeting again wherever you hear your podcasts.